Well, a number of years ago when my children were young, we were putting my son down for a nap. And he shortly thereafter began screaming. And so we rushed in to see what was going on. And he complained about his eyes. His eyes were hurting. And as we searched his room to try and figure out what was going on, nothing seemed out of order. There was a little bit of something in his bed that we couldn't figure out what it was. We thought it might be dirt or sand, and so we brushed that away, and we washed out his eyes. We searched his pockets really good and put him back down to sleep. Well, this recurred a couple more times, and eventually as we were searching him and trying to figure out what was going on, we noticed that his pants had a lining in them, and there was a a tear in his knee. And he was able to slip an object in there between his pant leg and lining, and it was resting down at his ankle. And there I found a little pepper shaker that he had taken from the table at lunchtime that day and I guess was playing with it and was getting the pepper in his eyes and uh, would quickly hide it back down his pants before we came in. Well, we've all hidden things before. Maybe an object, maybe just information. This morning we were going to look at a person who hid something, but the ramifications of his secret were far greater than just a little pepper in your eyes, right? As we look at this secret, I believe that we will be sobered and encouraged and we will go out and live here differently. So take your Bibles and turn with me to Joshua chapter 7 as we look at Achan and his secret. Joshua chapter 7. And while you are turning there, let me just give you a little context. Uh, The book of Joshua opens with Israel about to enter the promised land. Moses has died and Joshua is now in charge and God tells Joshua that he will be with him in the same way that he was with Moses. Chapter 3, the Jordan River is flooded and God parts the Jordan River and the people walk through on dry land just as he did with the Red Sea. And he tells Joshua, who reiterates this to the people, that that is a statement or a sign to the people that God will be with them as they drive out the inhabitants of the land. Just as he has parted this Jordan River, he will be with them and give them victory. In chapter 6, they take Jericho, the most fortified of fortified cities. But they don't take it with weapons and armies. They take it with shouting and trumpets. And God causes the walls to fall down and he gives them a supernatural victory. In chapter 6, verse 27, says, The Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Everything is going well. And then in stark contrast to this, chapter 7, verse 1, we read, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things, For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. And so the natural question here is, what are the devoted things? What are literally the things set apart to the Lord? And to answer this question, we have to turn back to chapter 6 where God here is giving instructions 
to, uh, to Joshua before they take Jericho. Verse 17 says, And the city, the city of Jericho, and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you may take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. And so it seems clear enough here, the stuff in the city is devoted to God, don't take it. Then you read in the next verse, Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. And so it seems that they obeyed. But then, chapter 7, verse 1, we see that they didn't fully obey because of Achan, right? He took some of the devoted things. And because of this, the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. And if you look at the last verse in this chapter, 7, verse 26, it says, And they raised over him a heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. And so the wrath of God bookends this chapter. This is a story about the wrath of God. Now, God's wrath isn't something that we like to talk about. But it's necessary. If we overlook the wrath of God, then our thoughts of God will be stunted and inaccurate. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Verse 2. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up! And spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up from there, or went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. The men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shabarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Now verse 1 is an aside from the narrator to the readers. That's us. The Israelites have not read verse 1. And so they go about their warfare as, as normal. And they, they scout out this city, and it's a smaller city, and they say, hey, we don't need to send everyone. So they send, make a strategic decision here, and they send fewer people. But they don't realize that this story is boxed in by the wrath of God. And so they fail to take AI. And this puzzles many commentators. Right? They, they don't understand, you know, they're, they're trying to figure out why They didn't take Ai. And some say it's because of Joshua's presumptuousness. He assumed it would all go well and therefore it didn't. And that just doesn't make sense because God told him that he would be with them, that they would take the people, that God would fight with them. So why wouldn't he assume that it would go well? 
And other people say, well, it's, it's because he didn't pray. Before they took Jericho, there was a prayer, and there's no prayer before they took Ai, so they didn't pray, and that's what caused it. And that's not it either. Because the text tells us in verse 1, it's because God's anger burned against them. Right? God's anger burned against them. But Joshua doesn't know this. And so he's confused, and so he seeks the Lord in prayer. And in verse 10, the Lord interrupts Joshua's prayer, and he says, Get up! Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. So he explains it to him. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. This is why they fell. They turned their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord, God of Israel. There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. Now, God is going to identify the person who has sinned. What has been done in secret is going to be exposed. And this is true not just for Achan, but for all of us. Romans 2 says, God will judge the secrets of men. 1 Corinthians 5 or 4, the Lord will bring to light the things now hidden in the darkness. Luke 12, Jesus says, what you have whispered in private rooms will be proclaimed on rooftops. Secret sins will not stay secret. And there's not a person in this room who wants that. And that's why the rest of this story is so important. In Joshua 7, verses 16 to 26, we see three warnings that will help us keep sin out of our camp. If you are taking notes this morning, that is my outline. I encourage you to write that down. Three warnings that will help us keep sin out of our camp. If we heed these warnings, then by God's grace, we will keep sin out of our camp. We will avoid being exposed because there is no sin to expose. And we will live holy lives that honor the Lord. So let's look at the first warning. Don't presume on God's mercy. We see this in verses 16 through 18. Don't presume on God's mercy. God tells Joshua that there's sin in the camp. Someone has deliberately disobeyed. They took the devoted things when, I said, when he said not to. And now God is going to tell them who it is. Tomorrow. He graciously gives 24 hours to Achan so he can repent. And the striking thing is that in verse 16 here, Achan is not mentioned, right? 
verse 16, it says, So Joshua rose early in the morning. What about Achan? God graciously gave him 24 hours to repent, and he squanders it. This man is about to meet the wrath of God. 36 people have just died because of his actions. He has the opportunity to repent, and he doesn't. Verse 16. So Joshua rose early in the morning, and he brought Israel tribe by tribe. And the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites man by man. And Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man. And Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Now if God knows who did this, and he does, why this, this whole drawn-out process? Why didn't he just say, Achan did it, it's under the rug? I think part of the answer is, he's still giving Achan time to repent. And I believe that through this, right, that if Achan had confessed, I believe the Lord would have forgave him. The scriptures are clear that God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But instead of confessing his sin, instead of coming forward, Achan watches as God narrows the selection little by little. And maybe he's sitting there sweating it out, going, oh, please don't pick me, please don't pick me. But my guess is that's probably not what's going on. My guess is that he's rationalized this, right? He's found a way to justify his actions in his head. And maybe he's thinking, look, the, the stuff here, it's, it's for my kids, for their future, right? I don't have a lot of money and they need some and this is a good way to help them out. Maybe he's thinking, look, I'm going to take this money and I'm going to use it to, to start an organization, a nonprofit that's going to be for the Lord anyway. And so it's still the Lord's money, right? I believe he's convinced himself that he is not sinned. He's not worried because he's not guilty in his mind. We have all sinned and disobeyed God. And because of that, we are deserving of God's wrath. But by trusting in Jesus, in his death on the cross, that that paid the penalty for our sin, the wrath of God is poured out upon Jesus instead of us and we can be right with him. And if you do not believe that, you need to before you leave. Before you leave today, talk to someone in leadership and say, hey, help me out here. But Christian, you believe that, then you are right with the Lord. And nothing you do will change that positionally. But your sin can mess up your walk with the Lord. John Edwards was a presidential candidate about 15 years ago, and he was one of the leading candidates for the White House. He was a, a, known as a family man, married, four kids. His wife, Elizabeth, had breast cancer, and he stood by her side faithfully as she battled that and overcame it. Great story. 
Well, on the campaign trail, as Edwards was raising money, he met a woman named Riel Hunter, and he began having an affair with her. And this went on for some time until uh, Hunter called his wife, or excuse me, Hunter called Edwards on the cell phone, and Elizabeth, Edwards' wife, picked up the phone and answered. Caught. Well, Edwards said, it was a one-night stand, only happened once. Confessed to his wife right there, picked up the phone, called Hunter back, and said, it's over. Ended it. Only once Elizabeth left, he called Hunter again and said he just had to say that because his wife was there, and he continued on with the affair. In the meantime, the cancer comes back. And so publicly, they are a family united by tragedy. Right? Edwards would say, there is no one I admire more than my wife. And he'd call her my hero. But privately, he'd continue the affair. Until a newspaper tabloid broke the news. Edwards denied it. He said, the story was made up. I've been in love with the same woman for 30 plus years. And then the newspaper published a photo of Hunter pregnant. And so Edwards found a, a campaign member to claim that he was the father of the child. Now, at this time, Edwards is still married to his wife legally. Positionally, his actions have not changed that. But what do you think his relationship with his wife is like at this point? Beloved, when we persist in sin presume on the Lord's grace, we do the same thing in our relationship with him. Is there sin in your life that you're covering up? Are you rationalized, making excuses? Have you convinced yourself that you're not in sin, found a way to justify it? Maybe you need to ask your spouse or a roommate or a friend or someone who can help you see your blind spots. Don't be deceived. God knows your sin and it will be exposed. Not yet. He's graciously giving you time to repent. Don't squander it. Don't presume on God's mercy. It's the first warning that we see from the story of Achan that will help us keep sin out of our camp. The second don't dwell on wrong thoughts. We see this in verses 19 to 21. Don't dwell on wrong thoughts. Verse 19. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord, God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and I took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. And Achan finally confesses his sin. But it's too late now. If you look at the verbs here in verse 21, you see a pattern here, a picture. 
His confession provides for us a picture of how sin takes root in our heart. Verse 21, he says, I saw. And then he says, I, I coveted. And I took. And they are hidden. And that's the, the pattern that we, fall, we see, or follow. We see things. We desire them. We take them. We hide Right? And James, 1, James 4 talks about this, this, this relationship of desiring things. There's desires that you have, and they lure us, in a, and lure us away and entice us, and it grows into sin. And so sin starts in our hearts, in our minds, in our thoughts with our desires. And this doesn't mean that every desire is wrong. Right? Yesterday I saw a cookie. And I desired it, and I took it, and I ate it, and it was good, and it was not sin. <laughs> so when, then, do desires become sinful? Right? As, as Christians, what should we want most? 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 5.9, whether we are home or away, we make it our aim to please him. We should want to glorify God. We should want to please the Lord more than anything. And so there's a, a balance. We can desire other things. It's not wrong. But when those other desires outweigh our desire to glorify the Lord and to please him, that's when they become wrong. When you want something so much that you're willing to dishonor God or displease God to get it, that's when it's wrong. When you want something so much and you don't get it and therefore your response is to dishonor God or displease him, then it's wrong. We need to pay attention to our desires and to thought. We need to keep them in check. right? Not just let our desires float around like a rubber ducky in a bathtub. We need to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And this is why the scriptures are full of exhortations to be alert and to be sober-minded. When we lived in Africa, we had a night guard and a really big dog. And they stayed outside and their responsibility was to protect us, to alert us to danger. And there was one night where our dog began to bark continuously for about 20 minutes, just run back and forth on the back wall and bark wouldn't quiet down. Eventually he did. And then about a half hour later, a couple guys poked their head over the wall, started to climb over. But our night guard was waiting. He was vigilant. And he blew his whistle. He shined the flashlight on them. He began to yell, thief, thief, thief. And they ran, ran away. But what would have happened if our night guard wasn't so watchful? What would have happened if when the dog was barking, he just said, oh, he's a puppy, doesn't know what he's doing, just quiet down, hadn't paid attention to the barks? What would have happened if he did pay attention, but he just did a quick sweep and said, ah, nothing here, and moved on, and hadn't continued to watch and look and wait? What kind of guard are you over your mind? Are you vigilant? Are you Active? Are you looking for danger? Are you being careful with the thoughts that come in and go out? Are you a rubber ducky in a bathtub? Just going with the flow. Whatever happens, happens. 
sometimes we have a thought that comes into our mind or we look at something that we shouldn't look at, right? And in the moment, it happens and you have no control over that. But after that moment, you have a choice. What are you going to do with those things? Do you let them linger? Do you kind of enjoy that moment for a while? Or do you take those thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ? Do you think on truth? Do you put them out of your mind? I find it amazing that Achan was warned with all of Israel about the devoted things. But he still let his mind drift to them. He still let the desires go and coveted them. Don't think that you're above certain sins. 1 Corinthians 10 says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. If you think you can stand, take heed. Don't give sin any room in your heart. Don't dwell on wrong thoughts. It's the second warning that comes from us, comes to us from this text. The third, don't coexist with sinful practices. We see this in verses 22 to 26. Don't coexist with sinful practices. Verse 22. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters, and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had, and they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble upon us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire and stoned them with Stones, And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Achan is killed with his family. And you say, hold on, I thought Achan was the one who sinned. He's the one who hid these things. Why, Why are his children put to death too? Deuteronomy 24 says that children shall not be put to death because of the sins of their fathers. So they weren't put to death because Achan had sinned. They were implicit in this in some way. They were involved. And that's not hard to imagine. If you're living in a one-room tent and you're burying something in there, they're going to notice him digging things up. They're going to notice that the dirt is freshly dug up, right? They're going to see this. And so they went along with that sin, and it cost them their life. But if you notice who's not mentioned here, there's nothing about his wife. And so either she had died before this story happened, 
Or she didn't go along with it and she wasn't involved and therefore she was spared. But if you look at verse 24, there's a whole bunch of other things grouped in here too. Right? The, at the end here, the oxen, the donkeys, the sheep, even the tent. I'm pretty sure that group didn't go along <laughs> with Achan's sin. So, so what's going on here? Why destroy all these things too? It's to emphasize the seriousness of sin. All right, and look at this language in, in verse 25. Look at the emphatic language. It says, and all Israel stoned him. That would have been enough, but they stoned him with stones. And they burned them with fire. And in case you missed it, here it is again. They stoned them with stones. Right? The text is drawing attention to this. This is a big deal. Paul told the Romans to take note of the kindness and the severity of God. This is the severity of God. And we need to take note of it. If this display of God's wrath bothers you, then you don't understand the seriousness of sin. But the more we understand his holiness, and the more we understand the danger of sin, the more we'll be motivated to take sin seriously. This is why Jesus says, if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. He doesn't mean that literally because you have your other eye that can still cause you to stumble. But what he means is deal radically with sin. Don't let it persist. Most of you know that my wife had cancer. Right? When we were first married, uh, we spent the first six years of that dealing with her cancer. And her, her cancer was in her thyroid, but it had spread outside into her neck and up into her face. And the fear was that it was going to go to her lungs. And so we didn't mess around with that, right? Surgery, radiation treatment, surgery, radiation treatment, again and again, six years, I said. Her body today bears the scars from that battle. You don't take cancer lightly. You don't say, not that big of a deal. We're just going to wait and see what happens here. Right, we're going to put a Band-Aid on it, and maybe it'll just get better. Right? You don't mess around with cancer. You deal drastically with it before it deals drastically with you. It is that severe. Do you deal drastically with the sin in your life? Or have you learned to coexist with it? Right? Are you satisfied with mediocre obedience? Right? Sin is things like murder and adultery, things that I don't do. But impatience, anger, bitterness, things I can do in my heart and get away with them and still be thought of as a good Christian, those things we let go. Right? As long as they don't become uh, too scandalous. Right? As long as other people don't notice. If that's what's going on in your life and you're letting that go, you're playing with fire. You need to deal radically with sin before it deals radically with you. I don't want uh, to be misunderstood when I say this, right? You will struggle with sin until the day that you die. But if I can say it this way, don't be content with struggling with sin. 
Kill it. Don't let it persist in your life. Don't coexist with sinful practices. Achan had a secret. He concealed it. Didn't end well for him. The rest of Scripture refers to him as the guy who disobeyed, who took the devoted things. That's what he's known for. The book of Joshua, there's another sinner. And she is so well known for her sin that it essentially becomes part of the title in her name, Rahab the prostitute. She didn't hide it, right? But she repented of it. And she helped the people of God. Her story doesn't end there, right? She helps the people of God. And the rest of Scripture speaks well of her. In fact, James holds her up as an example of faith and works working together. Proverbs 28, verse 13. It says, Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Achan and Rahab are examples of this. But what about you? How do you deal with the sin in your life? In folly like Achan or in faith like Rahab? Let's pray. Lord, we know that what we do behind closed doors is no secret to you. We can hide things from people, (laughs) but we can't hide them from you. The darkness and the walls that hide us are as transparent as glass to you. Yet sometimes we still act like Achan and we try to pretend that there is no sin in our lives. We try and go about our day and interaction with others like everything is fine. Help us to live lives that match our theology. Help us to confess that sin and repent of it and live lives that honor you. We pray all this in your name. Amen.